Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for this amazing opportunity to come together and to study your word. Jesus, we bless you for the fact that you taught in picture and in word, that we might hear and see and understand. And today, as we take a few moments to look at your words, Jesus, we ask that you would open up our hearts and open up our ears, um, that we might grow a little bit more into the people of God that you want us to be. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the talk tonight is entitled Good Earth. And specifically, we are focusing in on a passage of Jesus, a parable of his, often entitled the parable of the sower. It's told in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. We're going to look at the Mark 4 version. Because nine of our brothers and sisters were killed by a terrorist who had racist intentions and purposes in Charleston as they studied this passage in Bible study. This was the passage that they were gathered together that fateful Wednesday evening, studying together, and nine brothers and sisters were killed. Killed because of the color of their skin, killed because of the presence and power of the church that they were meeting in at that place, and killed by a madman and a terrorist with um, horrific leanings. As a desire personally to want to stand in solidarity um, with our African-American brothers and sisters throughout the nation who are continuing to experience deep pain and hurt as black churches are being targeted by arsonists, as our African-American brothers and sisters are being targeted by hate crimes. I want to remember these brothers and sisters, these nine, um, who did a faithful thing. They came together on a Wednesday night to sit and study text. And they studied this text. And I can't think of any better way to honor them and to remember them and to study text with them. We are here in the Bay Area. We have this incredible blessing of having a fairly diverse community, larger here in in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, as well as here at Spark. And I'm thankful for that, and I grow because of it and learn because of it. But I don't think we should neglect the reality of the world that we still live in. It can feel a little bit like we're in a bubble here in Silicon Valley where... um, Racism still exists, but we are somewhat protected in many ways from the most extreme views. Not always, but sometimes. It's not the same as going to other parts of our country. It's not the same as being in the South. It's not the same as having to argue about whether or not the Confederate flag should or should not be waving. Here on the west portion of the bay, we're not having those same conversations in the same way. Maybe we should be but we're not pressured to have them because of events that are occurring in our very own yards. Um, We gather here at Spark in a synagogue. Um, We know that as a result of um, being in a synagogue and being here as a church in a synagogue, that we also are joining with our Jewish brothers and sisters and saying that that anti-Semitism shouldn't stand and we will join with them um, even in that risk. Now, we're safe here again. We're in lovely Palo Alto, and I think there's about 30 to 40,000 Israelis that live right here in the area because we have high-tech Silicon Wadi. Um, it's the Arabic word for valley. So um, there's a Silicon Wadi in Israel and a Silicon Valley here. And, and we have, um, again, this great blessing of somewhat pretending that these things aren't going on in our own backyards. But just a couple years ago, a Jewish student 
was harassed for being Jewish at Palo Alto High School. Um, and several were, it, it's happening, we have um, difficult things happening to African-American friends of mine who drive into Palo Alto because they live there and work there. Um, but the police um, often are still struggling with their own understandings of systems and structures and institutions. So let's stand with our brothers and sisters today and study text. Sound good? All right. So let's look at Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. And when the sun came, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and others around him, so it's not just the twelve, there's a group, asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And i just like to stop there and say we're going to interrupt this program for context on that one statement. So our sermon today is not focused specifically in on that particular statement of Jesus. We're going to focus in on the parable of the soils, on the parable of um, the sower that we're looking at. However, I think we need to stop and try to unpack that statement of Jesus. Growing up, it always sounded like conf confusing to me. Anyone else confused by that statement? Uh, I'm pretty sure, Jesus, you came here to the whole world to preach that none may perish, like I have all these, you know, like that the world may know that there's a God of Israel, and then all of a sudden there's this, like, by the way, I'm going to speak in code, so only you guys on the inside and this, like, clicky thing can totally get it while the guys on the outside just fall away. And it doesn't make sense, does it, for me? It doesn't, it's not, right? Thank you. I'm get a hallelujah, preach it, sister. Yeah, okay, good. So it's a weird little bit. And the reason why we're confused is because we uh, don't know the book of Isaiah by memory. So the, anyone, Isaiah 6, got that? Okay, so we're going to interrupt this program for a few moments and look at Isaiah 6. Jesus is quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 6. And this is the passage where Isaiah is called in this magnificent, incredible, weird cherubim, glory of God, holy, holy is the Lord in his temple, like his, his robe and all this. And then a cherubim's going to take a coal from a fire and put it on Isaiah's lips. And gonna, I mean, it's just all this amazing stuff. And then verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So God is calling the prophet Isaiah, and he's calling out saying, who will go? And Isaiah stands there and says, here I am, send me. And we love that, and we sing that song all the time. So we probably have that part of Isaiah memorized, yeah? Whom shall I send? Here I am, send me, right? Anyone that song growing up, campfires? Here I am, Lord, is it I, Lord? I've heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord. No? 
Thank you. Okay. Feel free. So I spent 12 years in a predominantly African-American church. So feel free, particularly in light of our brethren, our nine brethren that have passed, to shout out every once in a while like an affirmation or am. Amen, right? Got that? Okay. So who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Next verse. Here we are, ready? Verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people. God says to Isaiah, go and tell the people of Judah, where Isaiah was a prophet for the southern kingdom. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah says, for how long, Lord? And then God launches into this, like, until their fields are burned, until the walls come down, until they finally understand, until they finally repent, until Assyria comes and crushes, until the Babylonians come and take them out. I mean, Isaiah's just going to launch in this huge God through Isaiah, prophetic judgment upon the people of Judah because of all the crazy that they've been doing. And yet, in the midst of that prophetic call and judgment, God is choosing to send his servant Isaiah to a people that he knows their hearts are hard, but with the hope that they will turn and listen. And it's this Hebraic irony that is in there. So when God, it's, I know it's confusing, but the passage really is that Jesus is quoting is he's gra- grabbing Isaiah's prophetic call and he's saying, like Isaiah, I am here to a people who I know are hard hearted. But that doesn't mean that I don't want them to hear, that I don't want them to understand, but I'm just telling you what is likely disciples is that they will listen and not understand. They will hear, but not obey. And we've had that conversation, too, where we'll be talking to, about somebody we had a conflict with, you know, they just didn't get me. They just didn't understand me. I tried to explain it six ways to Sunday, and they didn't understand. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't hear you, right? It means that they didn't get what you were saying and then act differently as a result. My daughter watches a little Daniel Tiger whenever we are... Um, you know, doing hair in the morning. So when we're doing a little, we need to sit, sit quietly for just a couple minutes, honey. So watch a little Daniel Tiger. And Daniel Tiger has this episode where, because Daniel Tiger is Mr. Rogers, and he's like all about deep feelings, and I'm a huge Mr. Rogers fan. He was a Presbyterian minister, by the way. Um, so as we're sitting there talking, in this Daniel Tiger episode, they do something terrible to Prince Tuesday's crown, and Prince tu- they go, I'm sorry, Prince Tuesday, and Prince Tuesday says, sings his little song, it's not enough just to say the words. Now you have to do something to make it better. It's that. It's that Jesus is saying it's not enough that they're going to hear these words. It's that they have to turn to make it better. And so when he quotes Isaiah, he's hearkening everybody back. He's picking them back up in this Roman occupation, difficult people not obeying. He's in Galilee. There's tensions between Galilee and Judea. There's no such thing as a non-Hellenized first century Judaism. All of that chaos that Jesus's people are in, they're being taxed upwards of 90% of their income. All that madness, all the unfairness, all the difficulty, Jesus picks them right back up from the first century and drops them back into Isaiah's time and says, remember, this isn't the first time this has happened. And God is now sending someone again to try to bring you back to him. But I'm being prophetic by also telling you it's not likely to happen that people are going to listen. And by the way, he was right. Okay, 
cool? Does that verse now make a little more sense rather than Jesus speaking in secret code and not wanting anyone to hear? Great. All you got to do is memorize Isaiah and everything else will come clear. So let's go back to Jesus' parable now that we kind of unpack that one thing. So then Jesus says to the disciples and the others that are around them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So he expects them to get it. By the way, in rabbinic literature, we have hundreds of parables. Jesus wasn't the first person to tell a parable. He wasn't the last rabbi to tell a parable. This was a common way of teaching. He says this, The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes, or the accuser, and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And this is what is often known as the parable of the sower. That's the end of our reading from Mark chapter 4. Now let's look in. I'd like to suggest that how we've titled it, which is really up to our editors as they make our chapter and verse markings for us, the parable of the sower, it's actually not the parable of the sower. Because nothing about the sower changes. Who, by the way, does the sower represent in the parable? It's an easy Sunday school question like, God? Okay, good. Squirrel? Yeah. So the sower is God. Again, you can shout out. So is God. And God doesn't change. In the parable, God remains the same. The person sowing, maybe, maybe the person sowing is Jesus. Maybe the person sowing is a good teacher. But that remains the same throughout the whole parable. The seed doesn't change. So we can't call it the parable of the seed. Because the seed is the word of God and the seed remains the same throughout the entire parable, does it not? What is the thing that changes throughout the parable? The soil. So this should be referred to as the parable of the soils or the parable of the hearers. And now we're going to focus in on what this parable is actually teaching us with Jesus. So if you have your uh, smartphones and you're looking or you have a neighbor next to you, this is where we're going to tag on into a few fun um, ancient pictures of what it looked like in Jesus' day and before uh, and um, more recently, like the 1800s to 1900s, in Galilee. Not much had changed um, in rural Galilee. Life was still continuing along the same way. So that first photo that you have um, in your PDF document is a picture of people out in the field beginning the harvest. Now, it's suggested by most who observe these customs and practices that people would be out in the fields sometimes for months. This was not a quick process. They didn't have large things. So I'm going to explain the whole process to you, and it's this whole process that would keep them out in the field for a month to two months to three months harvesting. The first harvest comes in April, and it's the barley harvest. And so people would go out into the fields and start doing that barley harvest. By the time of around May, June, you're going to have the wheat harvest coming up, which would also be the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot in your Bible. So as we have this barley harvest, people are going to go out and they're going to start to pick. 
And as they start to pick one, they with a sickle, they would start to gather the wheat and the tares all together, hold those, wrap them up in little bit of bundles, and then toss them to the side. And once they had enough, they'd carry them through. Then at that point, they'd load up, at least in the late 1800s, camels. The Bedouin had camels, and they would load up their beasts of burden with all of this wheat that they just cut down out of the field, wheat and barley. Now, the next scene that you can see, if you're following along, is a picture of a threshing floor. It looks like a big circle with a big pile of the wheat or barley in the center. The threshing floor was typically a flattened place. You'll remember that David buys a threshing floor on the top of Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, and that's ultimately where the house of God will be built um, in Jerusalem. It's a flattened place where you can catch a little bit of a breeze or a wind, not too rough of a wind where it's going to blow everything away, but a little bit of one. And it's going to often have, I mean, you can come and see them with us in in Israel. Um, It'll often be stone so that you can sweep it up more easily and quickly and gather all the grain. Sometimes if you couldn't find a flattened stone area, then you'd find one that's a little bit more like dirt flattened dirt area. After you would bring that through, then you'd have beasts of burden, oxen, maybe donkeys, pulling a threshing sledge around that huge pile and breaking down the wheat and the chaff, breaking that down. The threshing sledge would be a long piece of wood, like a sled that had sharp stones sticking out of it, and then you got to ride on it and have it go around. Now, this picture will come out even in Paul's teaching where he will say, don't muzzle the ox. Because it was taught throughout the Torah as well as in Paul that you shouldn't muzzle the ox as the ox is doing this hard work, that even the oxen get to have a bite. So immediately you're starting to share your food with your beasts of burden and animals. Then, after that's broken down and they're starting to sift all of that out, now you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. Anyone hearing like 16 parables of Jesus, right? So all of these farming parables that Jesus gives, all of these images, this is coming right from his community, right from his land, these beautiful valleys in Galilee. And so you would find a nice, light enough breeze, not too heavy, where you would take a big pitchfork, toss everything up in the air, something, the chaff blows away, and the heavier wheat or barley drops right back down. Once that's done, a woman sifts it. They will be sifted and separated like wheat from the chaff. I hope you go home and read your Gospels because all of these pictures of Jesus are coming right out of his land. He didn't need keynote or PowerPoint, right? He could just be like, like that thing over there, and they go, got it, totally understand that. I have to do that every spring for a couple months. So then they are shaken out. And then after they are shaken out, they're measured. And oftentimes, peasants in the community and others, as their portion is measured, they would have somebody that they owed a debt to standing right there going, okay, Yep, shaken down and poured out and measured over into me. And they would take their portion, and then that would be the rest that you would have and somebody else have. And so you see a picture of an older Bedouin man there measuring out his grain. This picture still exists even today in Galilee. And the next image that you have of these beautiful sort of rock and the view outcropping with the wheat in front shows you how the Galilee kind of looks again today. Paths going down, lovely fields that once they turn from green into brown, you are thrilled that the harvest is starting to come in. And in the Galilee, there are rocky places, there are thorns, there's beautiful soil, and there are boundary markers. 
Now, the boundary markers in Jesus' day and long before were incredibly important and valuable to the people. It was a rock boundary, and you can see that in that picture there, I think. It's beautiful. It kind of looks like little, yeah, nod your head. Yeah, I got it. Do you guys see that? It's clear where your field is and where your neighbor's field is. Got it? So Psalm 16, my boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So the psalmist in Psalm 16 says, hey, those boundary lines, that portion of inheritance that God gave me, I have it in really pleasant places. I got this sweet, nice slope. The wind comes in just fine. The rain waters gather there. I can irrigate it easily. My boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. This was the inheritance that God gave you and your family and your tribe as you entered into the land of Israel. So that's why Deuteronomy is so serious about it. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land your Lord God is giving you to possess. It is not your prerogative to look over at that boundary marker and say, you know what? I want some of what you have, and I'm just going to move that stone. God has set these boundary lines, these rock lines that surround the field, and he expects us to keep them as they are. Deuteronomy 27, 17. Cursed is anyone who moves the neighbor's boundary stone, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed are you if you move it, right? I mean, this is exactly so serious that you would say, hey, anyone who's going to move the fence line and change your portion of God's inheritance, either saying to your neighbor, I don't want to take care of mine and you have to take care of more of mine, or I don't think you deserve what God's given you and I'm going to try to take it. Instead, it's this prayer. This is, by the way, the prayer of Jabez. Can I have more of your kingdom, God, to take care of and to be in charge of as we go into the land? Not... Can I just have, like, lots of cool stuff? It's can I have more of what you're giving us in order to be a good steward of that? These boundary markers come right into Jesus' story. So as we start to look at these boundary lines, these ancient boundary stones, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying a sower goes out to sow the seed, and some falls in rocky places. Because inevitably, as a sower sows, the wind will blow. I mean, they'll be careful with the seed input down. But some of what you own has some rock. And then some of what you own is the path. And some of what you own is the thorns. And some of what you own is really great, beautiful soil. So, Jesus says, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. And everyone's like, amen, preacher Jesus. I totally know when that has happened. I saw those birds, right? This right out of their community. And so Jesus says, this is what he's talking about. Some people are like that seed along the path where the word is sown. They are that path, right? And as soon as they hear the word of God, Satan, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Some of us are like that. Jesus says, some of the people listening to me right now, Jesus is saying, like as he's preaching, some of these people will let this beautiful seed that the sower is tossing down land on them and their their hearts, their soil will be like a hard path where that seed just lies there on top. It makes no breakthrough and Satan can come and snatch that seed up. It doesn't even ever get to penetrate the ground. There's even some scholars suggest possibly that what Jesus might be referring to here in terms of the birds, um, because 
the eagle was a sign for Rome, that that might even be an additional corollary of a political statement. Who knows? You guys can all debate that after Spark around a good meal. But some are like that, are they not? Have you ever met somebody that no matter what it is you do, no matter how you share, no matter how you live your life, you can just tell that the seed, the word of God, isn't permeating? And maybe as we look back again in honor of our nine brethren from Charleston, we might say of the killer of this terrorist that something happened in this person's life at some point And who knows if he was ever exposed to the good teaching of Jesus, but certainly Satan is involved in this. And that word is not permeated in, and it's been snatched away. Now, some seed fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It falls right in that boundary line marker. It springs up quickly, so there's something there because the soil's shallow. But when the sun comes, the plants are scorched and they wither because they have no root. And then Jesus says, these people are like those that hear the word at once and receive it with joy. Woohoo! Praise the Lord! I had the best time at that revival. It was amazing. I can't wait to go back. We never see them again. By the way, the Wesley brothers, way, way back in, they were saying, so how was the revival? Oh, it was wonderful. Many additions to the church? No, but a host of blessed subtractions. Hilarious. So, right, sometimes you're glad when people exit. Um, but since they have no root, it lasts only for a short time, and when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Isn't that also true of either us or people that we know? That we look out at this world and we say, what kind of God allows this? What kind of God stands on the throne that we believe has been enthroned on the cross and you know, buried and resurrected and now is sitting at the right hand of the Father? What kind of God does not protect nine people who are gathered together to study his word on a Wednesday night? And we sit and we think, you know what, then I'm out. I can't do it anymore. I'm just, it's too frustrating. This world is too broken. As this story was breaking here in the U.S., we were back in Israel, and there's a beautiful, beloved church right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee of the Lobes and Fishes that was torched um, a little bit and uh, some graffiti uh, price tag attacked by some extremists that don't want Christians in the land. My home church in Jerusalem has been um, burnt twice and also had price tag attacks with graffiti. This is a world that can be frustrating and confusing and difficult. And we look at these situations, and it's easy to walk away. But the parable of Jesus is telling us that trouble and persecution will come. Notice at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the person who builds their house on the rock and the person that builds their house on the sandy soil, both of them experience the storm. As followers of Jesus, part of the reason sometimes where we we behave like we're this rocky soil is because we've been taught that somehow following Jesus prevents these things. And it's just not the case, nor is it at all proven in any of your text. And we're going to get to that a little bit further. 
So then Jesus talks about the thorns. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. And I know I can get a preach sister preach from anyone who's walked with me in Israel because the thorns are prolific. Yes? And I will walk people directly through fields just to experience them. No, just sort of sometimes. Um, so big thorns. And there's one, there's one road we take that I just call it wadi thistle because that's all it is. It's just thorns just all the way up. And it can come up chest high. And Jesus says that this is like seed sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come and choke it, making the word unfruitful. So, so the wheat and the barley come up, but it's in the midst of thorns, and you can't, you can't get that. It's too painful to get at. It's choked out. The fruitfulness of that wheat and barley is now not fruitful anymore. And lastly, Jesus says, this is the best soil. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And he says, this is like the seed who's sown on good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, and they produce a crop, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown, which, by the way, is a hearkening back to Genesis with Isaac, who produces this crop that's miraculous. And it's like if everything is exactly right, if the rain started at exactly the right time in October, November, if the soil was exactly just enough dampened, if the seed is exactly, you know, the sower knows what they're doing, the seed's exactly right and it puts in, and the weather is just as it should be, then yes, you can have in this beautiful soil a crop that's miraculous, that no one can sort of explain, that you just stop and bless God for. You go, whoa, God, this crop is a miracle. Luke 18 actually keeps an interesting Hebraism in it. And when he's also telling the story, this parable, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. So Luke tells us that the good soil is someone with a good heart. And it's a Hebraism. It holds back in there. It's those who hear the word and retain it. And in so doing, produce this beautiful crop. Jeremiah pulls that same image in in Jeremiah 4. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. It's this concept of breaking up the unplowed ground of your heart. That sometimes our hearts are hard. But there's good work that can be done. And we can break up that unplowed ground of our hearts. And we can start to circumcise our hearts. Dedicating that most inmost portion. The, the most sacred portion of ourselves to the Lord. Per K. Avot, Sayings of the Fathers in section 515. This is a, a collection of rabbinic sayings. Not long, written down not long after the time of Jesus. And likely reflect uh, what was going on in Jesus' day with rabbis. They talk about four types of of hearers as well. This aspect and concept of four as de- being different, four different types of disciples was very common in rabbinic literature. There were four fish that one talks about. Hillel refers to some. It's Rabbi Gamliel that has the people as a four fish. So here it says in Perkei Vote, there's four types among those who sit before the sages. The chazal, the sort of like the not yet rabbis because that wasn't certainly formed yet in that, in that portion, but there. There's four types who sit. The sponge, the funnel, the strainer, and the sieve. The sponge absorbs it all. The funnel takes it in at one end and lets it out the other. The strainer rejects the wine and retains the sediment. So you've kicked out the good stuff, you retain the sediment. And the sieve rejects the coarse flour and retains the fine flour. 
So that's what the rabbis would talk about. Here's the types of hearers that we have. Here's the type of disciples we have. Brad Young suggests it this way. He's a Christian scholar who spent most of his time, much of his time in uh, Jerusalem and Israel studying. He says there's four characteristics of a disciple. Quick to learn, quick to lose. His gain is canceled by his loss. Slow to learn, slow to lose. His loss is canceled by his gain. Quick to learn, slow to lose. This is the good portion. Slow to learn, quick to lose. This is an evil portion. This concept that Jesus is pulling on, everybody would have gotten. They're, they're like, hey, we totally get that. So it's kind of funny that the disciples are like, I'm sorry, could you explain that? And he goes, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand anything? This is like the clearest one I can give you. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he's saying some will hear but never perceive. And listen, let's be nice to the disciples. Even after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to them in Galilee and it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Yay! Isn't that, aren't you glad that's in your text? I'm so glad that's in my text. They were there. They saw it happen and they're like, hey, you're awesome. Can I just check that out for a second? I don't think it's only Thomas that's doubting by the way. I think they're worshiping and they're doubting. And doubt is not the enemy of faith. Certainty is. Faith requires lots of doubt. So when we talk about ourselves being good earth, good soils, having this good heart, we can even pull all the way back into Genesis when God starts to create. And he says he's planted the garden, no shrub has yet appeared. And this is in Genesis chapter 2. Streams came from the earth, watered the whole ground, and the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, right? He grabs dirt, earth, Adama, and he's like, okay, let me breathe into that and man. So this concept of us being soil, of us being earth, reaches all the way back into Genesis. We understand when we have the whole of the scripture in mind when we hear Jesus' lovely parable here, that we are expected to be good earth. And when God places Adam from the Adama, Adam, Adam, into the garden, he then gives him a job. He says, be here. All these things are beautiful and good. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And he said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will certainly die. So when the one created from the earth, created from the soils, when that one is given a job, He's given responsibility immediately, and he's actually required at the very beginning to hear and to understand, to apply. Good soil, good earth. Now, in Jesus' crowd, he has all of that disparity in the crowd that's watching him. Matthew 26, when he's arrested, Judas, who has been with him that whole time, and what type of soil would we vote maybe Judas into, right? So Judas, who's been with him that whole time, brings people there and says, it's the one I kiss. Gives him a kiss on the cheek. Greetings, Rabbi. Do what you came for, friend. The men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, drew it out, stuck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think I can't call on my father right now, and he'll at once put legions of angels here. 
But then how would the scripture be fulfilled? If Jesus, the son of God, the one who did miracles, the one who reached out, the one who brought in the marginalized, who brought in those people that were far off, if he, after his entire ministry, if his crowd listening, those all who had spent even three years with him, who had been picked by him and chosen by him, they desert him at the end. Judas betrays him at the end. And even he says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out here with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. So these are people that Jesus says, you've been listening this whole time. If it happens to Jesus, and we can say, well, it's fulfilled. Okay, okay. If it happens to Jesus, then why are we so surprised when it happens to brothers and sisters of ours in this community? Why are we surprised when there's evil? Why are we surprised when people are still intent on wreaking havoc and chaos in this world? It shouldn't be a shock to us. We live between the promise of the yes and the not yet. Yes, Jesus is resurrected, and yes, he is on the throne, and yeah, we're still waiting for things to get fixed here. And as we're waiting... We should expect trouble and persecution and difficulty. And the question when we, we do all of that is what kind of soil will you be when it comes? When I think of the people whose lives were taken as they sat there and studied this word, I am just assured by their faithfulness that they would go out on a Wednesday night and study the word that they're good soil sitting in a church that was active, that fought for justice, that tried to bring more of God's kingdom here on earth. And as they sat and they studied, evil came in and snatched lives. But guess what? The soil is good. There is nothing there. Have you seen that beautiful church respond? They've responded with forgiveness. They've responded with worship. They've responded beyond our understanding of what is even possible. They have again and again now produced a crop a hundredfold. I don't know if you saw the video, and we're going to put it on our Facebook page for Spark, but there was a journalist who's outside reporting as the families are confronting this killer for the first time in the courthouse, and he's outside the church reporting, and a whole bunch of worshipers show up, and he starts to cry. An MSNBC journalist, he just starts to weep. And he's, you know, supposed to be holding himself with some objectivity. And he keeps trying to get it back together. He's like, um, okay, so yeah, just, uh, it's just really amazing. Um, these people are just lost their loved ones and they're singing outside this church. And you get to see a journalist on MSNBC be moved deeply by words of forgiveness. You're like, there's some good soil. Forgiveness recognizes that no human justice can adequately respond to the grave injustice of such a racist, terroristic, murderous crime. We don't forgive because we're saying, oh, it's okay. We forgive because we say there's no human justice that is going to be satisfactory in this moment. We're trusting in a God who will bring his justice. Forgiveness is our faith that God's justice will ultimately prevail. It's not being a doormat. It's not sitting there and saying it's okay, because it's not. It's saying we understand this system is deeply broken. We understand that the evil one comes in. And we don't believe 
that taking this person's life is going to bring our loved ones back, or that somehow taking this person's life is somehow going to end racism in this country. We have so much work to do. We need to start relying on a greater power, a greater justice, and we're going to be looking to the sower and to the seed rather than trying to find justice in the soil. Forgiveness frees us from being trapped in the cycle of hate, preventing us from moving forward. Jesus watches his disciples take that sword and just snatch off the ear of that high priest, of the high priest assistant, maiming him so he wouldn't be able to serve. And Jesus is like, no, this is not how our justice comes. It's not going to come by the sword. Forgiveness recognizes that the love of God is absolutely more powerful than any racist hatred in this world. Our forgiveness, and as we push through, it is not because we're trying to be generous of spirit to such hatred. We should resist it and we should fight it. It is because we are trying to be set free from such hatred and not be captured back into it ourselves. We're going to rely on a God who's going to stand with us in community and try to move us to something new and different. This matters deeply because our attitude towards this issue, our attitude towards these events as a church, as Christians, reflects deeply our theology. If I ask you about Jesus, I can almost always find out from that moment what you think about black churches being burned, about Charleston, about Ferguson, about anything else. Because what we believe about Jesus, how we believe he has commissioned us into this world to bring more of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, all of what we believe about this current issue, this matters so deeply because it reflects not only to the world out there, it reflects to us, to ourselves, what you and I really believe about the person of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that he is? And what has he asked us to do here? These ancient faith stories of our text tell us that even in moments of chaos, even in moments as Assyria comes down and snatches the northern kingdom, Babylonians take away the southern kingdom, even as we watch the incredible injustices of Rome upon first century Jews, as we see all of that, when we read these ancient stories and we reach back to our text, we find out that in moments of chaos, in moments of terrorism, in moments of hatred, God is fully present. That's the miracle. He's there disrupting things. He's there providing an opening to a new future, to God's future. Listen, this is a horrible, unspeakable tragedy, but we need to start using this moment to let God disrupt us. And if you and I are sitting here or anyone within the ears of this message and you're thinking, wow, she's coming really down hard on this race relations thing and, you know, can't we just stay to the gospel and why do we have to... Listen, break up the unplowed ground of our hearts. We need to start getting involved because this is what we believe about Jesus. This is what we tell the world about who we are. This is how our church behaves. How will we show that Jesus is always rearranging powers? How will we show that he is always bringing justice? And how do we as churches do the same here? What if the next time, and unfortunately we all just know there's going to be a next time, something unspeakable and tragic like this happens, what if it's not 
just the black churches that show up? Or even the multicultural churches that show up? What if it's the white churches and the white clergy that stand there in robes and stand with the mother that's grieving because they've lost a child? What if it's the rest of us that show up and start saying, we believe in a Jesus that wants to break up this hard, unplowed ground of our heart and wants to start seeing this change and this shift. We believe in a Jesus that can make this happen bit by bit, little by little. This powerful reverend in Portland says it this way, it's not simply about who you pray with, but it's about who you're willing to die for. It's, an, it's nice for us to be in a church community that's diverse or in a larger Silicon Valley area that's diverse. But does somebody of another race, another ethnicity, another religion, another faith, I don't know who it is that we are harboring distinct hatred or discomfort with in our heart, but the way of Jesus is clear. He says, they will know you are my disciples by your love, and he commands us to love our enemies. If in those moments... We think of the person that's most unlike us. Are we in relationship with such a person that they would choose to have us with them when their mother has passed? In that moment, not just praying before a Bible study, not just having coffee afterwards, but they're choosing to say, I want you with me when I'm in deep pain. And this reverend says it this way, what's your proximity to the people who are catching the most hell? What sparks proximity to the people that are most marginalized, most suffering in this world? What can we be doing about this? I'm just praying that together as a community, we're going to start to wrestle with these questions. And as a result of our wrestling, and as a result of listening to Jesus' words and putting them into practice, that we will start producing a crop that is miraculous, that's a hundredfold, and that people will look at us and say, good earth, good earth. There's something there that's so good. And that God himself can look down and say, good earth, good soil. Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to study your word. Honestly, Lord, we don't have words when it comes to events like the one in Charleston and like others throughout our nation and the world. So we look to you, the sower, And we ask, Jesus, that your seed would come down deep into the soil of our hearts, that you would help us to break up the unplowed ground of our heart, that you would find in us and create in us good soil, that we might be people who hear and hear, who obey and obey, who shema and shema, that we do what it is that you are asking us to do and that we are found with the people who are suffering in this world the marginalized, the broken, the poor, because you've asked us to be there and you've asked us to love. God, in chaos, bring your kingdom and bring order. Let's see more of your rule here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.